Hello and welcome to the Stinging Fly podcast. I'm your host, Sally Rooney, and joining me today is the novelist and short story writer, Anne Griffin. Anne's work has been published widely in The Stinging Fly, The Irish Times and elsewhere. Her short stories have been shortlisted for numerous prizes and she was awarded the John McGahern Award for Emerging Writers in 2017. Her debut novel, When All Is Said, was published January 19 and immediately shot to number one on the Irish bestseller list. Thanks very much for being here today, Anne. Great to join you, Sally. So on this podcast, um, you'll know if you're a previous listener, we ask writers to choose a piece from the Stinging Flies archives to read and then to discuss. And can you tell me a little bit about the piece that you've chosen for today? I chose um, Oisin Fagan's Scaffolding and I chose it because it made me cry. Wow, great. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing whether your reading can make us cry. Um, so maybe we'll begin with the reading of the piece Perfect. and then we'll have a little bit of a chat. Lovely. Thanks very much. Thanks, Sally. My father is a 44-year-old unskilled labourer in Los Angeles and it is inevitable that he will die alone with no family, a smattering of friends and an unpaid mortgage in the suburbs of a city that he cannot afford to live in. And I will never know how he managed so many decades without me or my mother. And though I do not think of this often, when I do, I become confused and hurt. When I was a child, I used to believe that at some point something would happen and we would live together, father and son, in the same house. I used to imagine it in the same way that lovers imagine living with one another, with the belief that something is missing until every moment is shared. I cannot say how exactly this fantasy transfixed me, but I would spend several moments of every day, usually in school or sitting on the bus, or late at night when I couldn't sleep, imagining conversations we would have, or experiences we would share in the future. I do not know when I began imagining those scenes with my father, but I do know that I never met him until I was four, And all at once, I was shocked by this man who lavished constant attention on me and bought me toys and who made me do no chores. A man who took me to building sites where I was treated like an adult and respected by other men, much gruffer and older than my father, but almost just as caring. My first vivid memory of him is when he was carrying me on his back as he held on to the rafters like they were monkey bars and tiptoed across scaffolding. I remember I was holding a power drill with one hand and his neck with the other and he asked me to drill his brains out and I pressed the bit against his skull and pulled the trigger but nothing happened. You have to plug in these things if they are to work, he said to me. And then he put me down and we sat and shared a sandwich, our legs dangling over the edge of the planks. Then he said, the thing they don't tell you about Los Angeles is how boring it looks all the time. This is my only concrete memory of my father from that summer. I do remember smelling tar boiling and I remember the heat at midday, but I don't remember anything else. I always trusted my mother, so I always believed her when she told me about my father's strangeness, but I didn't fully realise how much he let his idealism impinge upon reality until I was nine. My mother was always terrified by my father's relaxed attitude towards safety, and I remember, even at the age of nine, thinking of her engendered terms because of her shrewish concern about my welfare and her constant complaints about my father's hands-off approach to rearing insofar as it didn't concern practical knowledge and manual skills. But all mothers are single parents, no matter what the context, and I am ashamed of how I used to think of her. Her worries became predictions in the summer of 2000. I had been in Los Angeles for three days, but my father, for the first time, didn't allow me to go with him on site. He didn't get on with the foreman, And he used to call him a cunt and fret about the flat before he went into work, leaving me alone in the house with a PlayStation and a TV he had hired for the month from Blockbuster. On my third day of playing Crash Bandicoot, I began to go blind, and he realised I hadn't left the house since I arrived. 
He took me down to the lobby and introduced me to a woman called Letitia, who did the cleaning in the building, and he told me to help her on her rounds. She was very nice, though she didn't understand me when I spoke. After midday, once we had mopped three hallways, she told me I could go out into the courtyard and play with the children. I was very shy at the time, but the more I protested, the more urgent her requests became. She almost pushed me down the stairs, telling me to ask for her son, Dwayne, saying he would play with me. There was a basketball court in the back of the condominium, and I stood at the mesh fencing for half an hour watching small Latin and black children play basketball with a beautiful fluency that I couldn't understand. The heat was so strong that I closed my eyes for a minute, and when I opened them again, I touched my eyelids and felt the skin burning. Later that week, they would turn pink and peel, and whenever I blinked, daggers of pain would send stars shooting through my eyes. After a while, a tall child came over to me and asked what I was looking at. I asked him if he was Dwayne, and he asked who was asking. I told him Letitia said I should play with him. Two of the children laughed at Dwayne when I said this, and he got angry and started cursing at me. Come on to the court, he said to me, and I did. One of the children threw the ball at me and I tried to catch it, but it just bent my fingers back and I gasped in pain. You can't play shit, Dwayne said to me. I don't know the rules, I said. Another child started laughing and said, If your mama sent him down here, it must be because she's hard dicking him, because he's stupid as fuck. Where is you even from? The small child, who couldn't be more than six, asked me. Kilshani, I said. The other child continued to laugh and Dwayne closed his eyes for a moment before he started beating me. I didn't know how to react. The blows didn't hurt at first, but they scared me and I just covered my face with my arms. The children drove me off the court and I ran into the building. I didn't remember what room number my father lived in and I ran around the different floors for hours trying to remember where I could go, not able to find Letitia. Finally, I sat on the fifth floor and cried for a while before falling asleep. When I woke up, it was three o'clock and I began to think my father would never come back and I passed the next few hours in fear, shivering with heat. My father found me at seven o'clock. I had been just three doors away from his room. He asked me what happened and I told him. He asked me why I didn't ask the doorman or knock around the rooms to find out where he lived and I just started to cry. He carried me into his room and washed my face and then put me to bed on the fold-out couch. Then he said he had to go check and see if Letitia was all right. He left for a while, and when he got back I didn't look at him, even when he sat on the edge of the bed and put his hand on my chest. For half an hour he explained to me social deprivation, institutional racism, the influx of drugs in black communities, the role of territory in gang politics and the mimicry of adult values by children with working mothers in lower income communities given their lack of role models. Then he said, if you tell your mother about this you will never be allowed to see me again. He ruffled my hair and walked over to his bed, took off his boots, lay down and read a Stephen King novel till midnight. He never once referred to the fact that I had been beaten, showed me sympathy or comforted me, and I felt even more scared and mistrustful than I had felt when I was alone in the hall. I didn't even tell my mother, but I felt myself more drawn towards towards her as a person when I came home. Or I valued her for a few months anyway, before I went back to not caring. The next summer, I didn't visit my father because my little brother was dying of leukaemia, But the year after that, I went back around the same time my father was moving out of his building. He had changed a lot over two years. He had met a woman from San Diego called Ellen and was in the process of moving in with her. He had become less reserved, but more polite. 
At times he almost treated me with formality, but when we were both with Ellen, he would act like a child and punch my arm and talk in a false accent and tell jokes. It was because of this that I didn't like Ellen. It wasn't that I thought of her as some kind of interloper. It was just that because of her, my father acted embarrassingly. She was a manager in a bar, which didn't make sense to me because my father never drank, probably because of his own father. Also, she lived in the suburbs and played soccer on the weekends. She was several years older than my father and I always got the feeling she talked down to him like a child. But this may have been my imagination playing tricks on me. I too had changed a lot. Every couple of days I suffered from uncontrollable fits of anger and sometimes I wasn't able to speak for hours no matter how hard I tried. I'd come over to my father in June because I'd been suspended from school and my mother wanted me out of the house for a while. My main concern that summer was getting back at Duane before we moved into Ellen's house. I tried to do this without my father's knowledge by wandering around the building for hours, clenching a rock in my fist. But the day we were moving out, I snapped. I was carrying a box of plates to his pickup truck and as I was handing it to my father, I asked where Duane was. He told me Letitia had died of a heart attack three months previously and Duane had been moved to a foster home. I threw the box on the ground and started hitting my father and shouting that I wanted to kill Duane. My father reacted by hitting me once in the stomach and pinning me to the ground. I spat in his face and he slapped me three times across the cheeks, his face silent and unemotional as he looked down on me. I continued to writhe against his strength for several minutes before I tired out and said I was done. He let me go and walked around into the driver's seat, leaving the box where I was and keyed the ignition. I had to run to the passenger seat before he put the truck in gear. He was already moving by the time I got in the car, because in America, I always go to the wrong side of the car first. The day after that was my father's 30th birthday and we all went to a restaurant and my father got down on his knees during dessert and proposed to Ellen. She started screaming and then asked my father to hold that position as she took a camera out of her bag and told me to take some photos. I took them quickly and went back to eating my cheesecake. When we brought the film to the pharmacist the next day to get it developed, the photos came out with big black smudges where my thumb had pinned the lens. Ellen thought I did it on purpose to spite her and she locked herself in the restroom crying. My father looked at me in confusion and chased after her, knocking on the door and pleading with her to come out. Finally, a security guard with a shaved head and a dotted triangle tattooed across his forehead told us we had to leave. I'm trying, my father said. The security guard turned to me and asked me if I was all right. I tried to answer, but couldn't. And then I realised I hadn't spoken since I had told my father I wanted to kill Duane. He's all right, my father said. He's not all right, said the security guard. Now get out and get her out as well. My father banged on the door wildly and Ellen unlocked it and came out. She had removed all her makeup and her face was still wet from the hand towel. Sorry, sir, she said to the security guard. Then she turned to me and said, I hate you. The security guard looked at me for a moment and then back at my father and said, You all need to go right now. That evening, my father called my mother and said I had to go home. I don't know what she said in reply, but I know that for one month after that phone call, I lived with one of my father's co-workers, Santiago Esperanto. I never really saw Santiago, though. His wife, Shireen, was the one who was there all the time. She made all the meals and cleaned up everything and talked endlessly. Shireen and Santiago minded seven children, though only four of them were theirs. All the children were under the age of 15 and we all slept in the same room, four to a bed. That was the best month of my life. 
My second day there, my father came over with Santiago after work and brought a TV and a GameCube that he had rented. He came over every evening after that, sometimes bringing me gifts, sometimes bringing Santiago money. But I never had time to speak with him, as I would always be playing the GameCube with Connell, or playing basketball with Ethan and Nathan, or falling madly in love with Kayla, or learning footwork with Jada, the oldest girl. My footwork was so poor that even Shireen would start laughing and join in, even though she had to use crutches at the time as she was five months pregnant. What was the most fun, though, was every two or three days, me, Ethan, Nathan and Connell would just beat each other up for hours. It was when Ethan and Connell had me in a headlock and I was trying to tap out that Shireen called me and told me to get ready to go. I didn't cry because everybody was hugging me too much. Afterwards, my father drove me to the John Wayne airport, taking all the while but I didn't answer any of his questions. When we parked the car, he held my hand and said, I need you. It's just really hard now. I love you. I hugged him and told him I loved him too, which was easy because I didn't care and just wanted to leave without making a scene. When I got home, I moved my things into my little brother's room and started crying. My mother came in and held me for an hour or so and then asked me if I was ready to be good now and I said yes, because I was. I went into secondary school that next year and though I wasn't good at school, I was polite and I didn't fight anyone. I was picked for the Claire's under 13 hurling team after Christmas so I didn't go to see my father the next summer. I probably wouldn't have gone anyway because the Esperantos had moved to Chicago that year so Shireen could be closer to her parents. My father got married in May He called in September telling me that Ellen was pregnant. When my mother found out, she started crying. Is it because he can't come home now? I asked. She sobbed for a moment and then said, He might be happy now. And then I hugged her for a while. I stayed in my little brother's bedroom till I was 20, at which point I moved to Galway. But when I think of how I was between 12 and 20, it seems most of my development happened in that bed, which was a child's single bed that my feet dangled over once I turned 13. I lost my virginity to Ashleen in that bed when I was 14. And when I broke my leg at 15, I stayed in that bed for four months and learned the skills that would lead to my career in web development. I did it mostly to get over the fact that I would never play sports again, but also to stop me from going crazy. When I was 17, I sliced through the mattress and stored all my gear there, which my mother found when I was 20, and which is why I had to move out. Two years ago, when I had to move back in, me and my mother hauled the mattress into the back garden and burnt it, and then sat down on deck chairs drinking beer, watching the flames and talking about our plans for the garden. Then last year, my grandfather's liver finally gave out and my father came home for a month. But I was so busy with work that I only got to see him twice, the last time at the funeral, when I tried to approach him. After his divorce, he started coming home every Christmas, even though it put him in debt, and I would make an effort to see him for at least the day of New Year's Eve. But at Granddaddy's funeral, he looked at me like I was a stranger. We were in Limerick, Mount St. Lawrence, and it was windy, and the wind was blowing his hair around, and I patted him on the back, and he looked at me. Hiya, he said, and we spoke for a while. Then he said to me, What are your plans? What are your plans? I asked him in reply and he gritted his teeth and I realised he was smiling at me with that nervous, closed-off smile that I had only ever seen once before. The last time he gave it to me when I was 16 and in America and he had smiled at me with a smile that made me fall into a greater confusion than any I have ever felt. 
I was 16 then and still hadn't gotten rid of my limp. But all the kids in the neighbourhood thought it was a stride I cultivated. I didn't like hanging around that summer though because we were in a neighbourhood dictated by Ellen's vision of herself and not by economic necessity. And all the children struck me as boring in comparison with the Esperantos. So I hung around the house all day on my computer playing Half-Life 2 or washing cars for a friend of my father's outside a gas station. I was staying on a mattress in my new little brother's bedroom. The bedroom was more like an office with a cot in it. The house telephone was kept there. There was a desk, bookshelves and an exercise bike and Jonah's cot, which was designed to look like Spongebob Squarepants. Jonah, who was three at the time, still slept there with his 15 teddies. He struck me as a useless individual and he still does, though I never see him, because at the age of eight he decided he didn't want to come to Ireland anymore and at the age of ten he decided he didn't want to see his father anymore. Decisions, Ellen, happily accommodated. But that summer he was still being breastfed. He wore organic nappies around the house and was still allowed to suck on a soother all day. He had developed a strong lisp his parents chose not to eradicate because they thought it cute. And whenever he threw a tantrum, he was never hit, but was punished by having to go to his room, which didn't make sense to me since he just played with his toys there. In any case, all that summer, I was putting effort into being accommodating and loving to Ellen, Jonah and my father, and it was putting a strain on me. Because the only time I could be alone was when I was washing cars, and I only had four hours work a day doing that. I was so bored that I began smoking heavily a two-packet habit I sustained to this day. And I would daydream for hours on end, finding it difficult to discern what is real from what is not. Sometimes I would burst into tears in public, but not very often. Then one night, in late August, I went to bed at eight o'clock in the evening because Ellen was shouting at me, because whenever I went for a piss, I left the door open. Everyone in my family had always left the door open if they were just going for a piss, and I couldn't understand why she was so angry. My father shrugged and I said okay and went to bed bringing the ice pack from the freezer that I laid on my chest every night so I could sleep in the summers. At two in the morning the phone rang and through my sleep I heard the tone click and my father's voice saying please leave a message. Then a drunken man started speaking slurred syllables in hushed tones. His voice cried it out with, cri cried it out with tears saying Ellie, Ellie baby please, please this is Patrice Please, baby, please, I can't live without you anymore. I need your cunt, I need your ass, your lips. Oh shit, please, I miss you so much, Ellie. Just fucking call me. I love you, I love you so much. I need your... God, oh God. Then he started sobbing for a while before he started again. You can't just fuck me this hard and then leave me. I need you, I need you, baby. Call me now, just call me right now. He hung up and I sat up straight in my bed. I was certain that what I had heard was a dream. I looked over to Jonah, sleeping peacefully, his hands wrapped around his thin sheet, his small face turned away from me. I sat up at the desk and replayed the message eight times, and then I sat still for an hour. I went into the kitchen and drank a glass of water. I sat down at the table and began to get scared. As my breathing came quicker, I woke up more and more, till everything I could see shone with an unnatural sharpness that stung my eyes. I kneaded my thumbs together and laid my head down on the table for a while. I must have fallen asleep because I remember rising up, not knowing how much time had passed, feeling the imprint of the table heavy on my cheek. I walked into the master bedroom. The only light was the one in the hallway, but I could make out which side Ellen was on. I went over to her and looked down at her. 
Then I went over to my father and knelt next to him and put my face so close to his that I could feel his warm breath on my lips and nose. He turned on his side and opened his eyes sleepily and said, Son, go into the office and listen to the last message left on the machine, I said. What are you doing? He asked me. Listen to the message, please. He got up, half asleep, just in his underwear and stumbled out of the room. I sat down on the side of the bed and looked out of the window for a while. Then my father came back in, crying silently. She's a slut, I said. He didn't move or reply. He just stood there looking at me. He remained silent for so long that I started talking, though I didn't know what I was saying. I just kept speaking, feeling as though if I didn't talk, my father would disappear. Let me kill her, I said. We'll give each other alibis. We'll be fine. We can go back home together. You can bring Joan if you want. It'll be fine. He can go to the Montessori. It's right next to our house. I know the teacher's there and all. It'll be fine. Don't worry. Don't mind Ellen. She's sick. She'll take Joan if we don't do something. Don't mind her. She'll be fine. I must have spoken for several minutes in this relaxed, listless tone that cost me no effort. I just rambled on, not noticing that Ellen had been sitting up, her eyes fixed on my father. Go back to your room for a minute, my father said when I trailed off. Let's just leave now, I said to him. Go back to your room, he said again. I had intended to leave, but as I was going out the door, I saw he was still crying and then I started crying too. It's okay, he said and he hugged me. He picked me up and put my head against his shoulder, though I was almost the same size as him. He turned to Ellen, me in his arms and said, go stay in a motel or go to a diner or something or stay with Patrick or whatever his name is and come back in a few hours. Ellen threw the sheets off her legs, swung off the bed and started putting her runners on. I'm taking Jonah with me, she said, looking down at the laces she was trying to tie. My father sighed and said, Will you just let me be with my sons for a few hours? I'm taking Jonah with me, she said, as she took her keys off the dresser. Don't be silly, my father said. Let him sleep. Come back in a few hours, please. I just need a few hours. She left without speaking anymore or taking Jonah. And when we heard the car leave the drive, my father sighed with relief and put me down. He led me into the kitchen by the hand and said he was hungry. So he made us two bowls of cereal. I sat down at the table but wasn't able to eat the lucky charms he'd put in front of me. He ate noisily, slurping his milk, and then he looked at me. His eyes had been crying for 15 minutes, but his voice and his breathing hadn't changed. Son, he said, if you care about shit like that, you're going to be fucked your whole life. I didn't know what to say, so I said nothing. After a while we went to bed, he took Jonah out of his cot and took me by the hand and guided us all into his bedroom. We all slept together that night. I woke at six in the morning, feeling tired and sick. I watched the light of day coming through the window and then remembered what had happened. I shook my father awake. Jonah cradled up against his bare chest and I said, Dad, Dad. Yes, he said, his eyes still closed. Dad, let's go. Let's just go. Let's go right now. I can't, he said. She's my family. No, she's not, I whispered. I am. Then he opened his eyes and smiled at me.
Thank you, Anne. Oshin <laughs> Fagan you. is the author of the short story collection Hostages. And this story, Scaffolding, was published in issue 30, volume 2, spring 2015. So when I asked why you chose this piece, or rather at the beginning, you told us that you chose this piece because it made you cry. Mm. Um, so I wonder, we might actually begin by talking about that a little bit. Why mm. do you think that the piece packed such an emotional punch for you? It's because it's a child, a child who's trying to make sense of his father, a child who simply wants his father to see him and love him and be with him. But this father, for so many reasons, and we are giving so, given so many clues in this as to why his father just is unable to do that. So the absence of that love, of that attention is just so palpable in this story. And there are moments at which, you know, I... I I cried so much and I think I in in my book had written about a father-son relationship as well from the perspective of of the father so that was still very fresh and raw for me in reading this and it was just so lovely to see that flip side that the damage that we can do as parents as well um and it just dug deep inside into me about the vulnerability of children and what they do to try and make sense of this world and how sometimes we don't really help them at all. There's so much to unpack there about yeah. the father-son relationship, about Absolutely. the child and the way that the um, the narrative of the child's experiences are presented. But first, I just want to dig into that idea about... Um, the story's emotional impact because mm. I found it very emotionally moving as well. Mm. And then I wonder you know, as writers and as readers, what are we getting from that? Like, what what is that craving to be made to feel sad or to be made to cry? What does it, what is that sort of cathartic feeling that it gives us? Why do we know that that makes a work of art so powerful? Um, I, it just, it's because it reflects what it is to be human in us all. And it reflects our own vulnerabilities. It reflects the truth of what it is to be human. And I think, you know, that's part of the great thing about fiction is is one of the things we might be trying to do is is to give that truth and to, to not be afraid about trying to um, cover up any emotions we might have. Um, that the, writing gives us the freedom to be able to say it all if we want to. Um, and I think I think that freedom is just so powerful um, as a reader and as a writer. Um, and it is the thing that as a reader, I know I need to connect with. I need to connect emotionally with characters. I need to feel, yeah, I get what they're saying or I get what that feels like. Um, and I think that is the mark of good fiction. Um, it's not in your sales or anything like that. It's in how it affects a reader. Um, and and this, just, this just captures it in eight pages for me. It digs deep into the heart of, of the vulnerability of who we are as humans and what we do to each other as well as humans. My goodness, we, can, we really can mess each other up when we want to. So I wanted to talk then about sort of family and memory because mm. obviously that's something you're concerned with as a writer it's something most of mm, us as readers are concerned with yeah and it's a difficult thing I think you'll agree to get right it's a very because it can feel like such a an overwhelmingly present topic structuring yeah. sort of all the development of our personalities and all our interactions yeah. are kind of structured in some way by our family history yeah 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 how can it go about being condensed you know mm. how do you go about condensing it as a writer or how do you feel as a reader Oshin Fagan has managed yeah. to condense it in this story well I think by using particular scenes 
you know, he he does it so well. He chooses two or three scenes um, that are are so are so emotional. I, that scene with with um, Dwayne, I loved, um, and um, and what it did, what he brought through his life because of Dwayne, um, and he allowed. Dwayne become the reason um, for his anger over his his little brother dying, um, and so I think I think Oshin really did that very cleverly, um, because that's what we do. We hold on to things. We hold on to 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 moments and say, yes, that's the reason why I'm sad. And really, we haven't gone down to to the lower part of the iceberg and really looked at well, what is actually wrong there. Um, I I think the the, the that final scene with the father and and the phone call coming through is just so brilliantly worked. It, the detail in it, the emotion in it, and it's not that you know Oshin says I was really sad. He doesn't. He says I sat for an hour. I I, I sat then in the kitchen and I I don't know how long I was there for. And things shone in this. You know, he he looks at detail rather than actually saying this was the emotion. So he paints he paints the emotion for us rather than giving us the words of the emotion, if you know what I mean. Um, so I think when you can do scenes like that in depth, like he does it, and when he can pinpoint what he did next, what he did next, what he did next, um, I think that creates the power of the memory, and that's so. I think it's really important when you are, um, when when writing, and what I did when when writing memories is to concentrate on a scene, to concentrate on that one scene and give the detail um, of of what you remember, and that brings the warmth and the emotion and and, and the sadness or whatever it is you're trying to relay um, to the reader. I couldn't agree more about how masterfully those scenes are constructed. And what struck me actually while you were reading it in particular was the extent to which um, Oshin had chosen not to write the scenes which a reader might assume were really the crucial emotionally impactful scenes. So obviously the death of his brother. Later he speaks about being kicked out of his house by his mother. So those scenes we know are full of emotional impact. But instead of giving yeah. us a blow by blow. Rather, he takes a very oblique angle and writes about he, these scenes that seem at first maybe not to be so significant yeah. and yet he draws oh. out a, a lot of significance from their, from their detail. It's as brilliant. You yeah. I think it's absolutely masterful the way he did that. Um, yeah, so he gave us these powerful scenes and as you say then, he gives us these just one-liners of something huge that has happened and I just sat in awe of that. I thought, wow, why wow, is so clever? Um, and yet you know that the rest of this child's life was packed full of that sadness around, say, his brother dying of leukemia and the mother as well. The mother is is there, but she's she's uh, she's in the background almost. One of my favourite lines is where, you know, he's, this is my favourite line of the whole. Can I just say this is my favourite line? But all mothers are single parents, no matter what the context. Oh, I just thought that was excellent. But I, I'm digressing there a little bit. But um, yeah, he does that brilliantly the master of understatement and yet wow does it pack a punch and does it stay with you as a reader you're remembering that you're saying oh this is it this is this is this is this added added damage and um heartbreak that this child has to live with and that that family that disparate family in uh, over two continents have to live with he's just 
they were they were master strokes. And actually, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the figure of the mother, because mm. re- reading and rereading the story, I came to wonder whether it was really a story about um, the narrator and his mother, even yeah. more than it was about the narrator and his father. And again, it was yeah. taking that oblique angle, oh. not looking directly at it, but still giving us a lot of information. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I loved how he dealt with the mother. I loved how he, he allowed her be almost silent. I mean, we only hear, she only says one thing, doesn't she? She only says um, this, this wonderful line, he might be happy now. And in that, in that one line, you're thinking, what was the history there? What was the history? Did she, I mean, they were obviously very young when, the, when, when they had, um, when they had the child. Do you have a name? The unnamed <laughs> narrator. I yes. think he's unnamed. Yeah, yeah I think, yeah. sorry. Yeah, just thinking about it now. Um, so they were obviously very young um, when they had him. Um, and so you're thinking, was she still in love with him? Or was she genuinely, did she genuinely know this was a man that that for whatever reason they couldn't be together anymore, but she had a, a genuine wish that he would be happy, that he would find peace. Um, so she gets one line in the book. And yet... That relationship with her, I think, was the steady, the steadiness for this narrator. You know, that he was able to, he leaves home, but he comes back. Yeah, she sends him away, obviously, when he's acting up after his his uh, little brother dies. Um, but he always comes back. She's always solid. And he does say that. He, he, he does refer to how, you know, his relationship with his mother was was a, a good one. Um but yeah, so I think you're right. I think there is something, there is something very central about that relationship with the mother. That relationship with the mother, I think, allows him, allows him be able to kind of get his life together, um, and to try to have a sympathy toward his father as well, even though there's huge confusion around his father. So I do feel, I do feel it is, it is a this story is as much about the mother than uh, as the father. When it comes to the sections of the story, large sections of the story, which are sort of narrated as if from the point of view of a child, although we mm. gather that the narrator himself is now older. Mm. It's funny, as, as an editor... I'm often loath to read stories narrated by by children because okay. I feel like very frequently it's a way for writers to sidestep, you know, coming to terms with the difficulties of a narrative voice that has all the experience of adulthood behind it. Okay. That sort of, yeah. It allows them yeah. to step into a slightly more naive voice. Yeah. And to, um, whereas this story is doing something very different and very challenging with mm. the perspective of this child. Um, it's taking all the sort of lessons that this narrator, I think, has learned about mm. his family dynamic and about himself mm. and and letting those inform the way that he narrates the, the, mm-hmm. the experiences mm-hmm. that he has as a child. Mm-hmm. Why was it that the that sections that deal with his childhood were, I think, the most emotionally impactful? Because um, I, th- I, I think just just on a general on a on a general thing, um, we are so f- we are we become we are formed by the experiences from our early childhood. Um, and so he was, he was a very confused child from early on, confused as to how to be with his father, confused as to how, how to express to his father. He just wanted him to be with him. He just wanted him to say, that was crap that you got beaten up. 
you know, um, and and yet his father didn't. Um, but I suppose then, yeah, I. I just think he writes this really well. I have to agree that he he has he has just been able to take exactly the emotion of a child without putting too much of an adult into an adult perspective into it. He really really digs down and has honed his writing to allow it be the child's voice, the child's experience. And and he isn't putting too much emotion into it. Again, it's back to that. He's not saying, I was I was really happy at this point or I was really sad at this point. He is using what happened around him, his, his memory of who the men were, the scaffolding, the drill, all of those things, I think, make it more authentic mm-hmm. than, than putting that adult perspective into it. In other words, it's not like this is an adult's idea of how a child might exactly. feel or how a child might behave. This is yeah. really on a very granular level exactly, exactly what this child Which did. is just wonderful, which which makes it, as you say, pack a bigger punch because you're really there with that child and you're really able to see them sitting on that scaffolding and being able to feel the excitement it must have had for that child. I think Oshin really really writes a four-year-old really well and then later a nine-year-old really well and later a 16-year-old really well. He just allows the scene, he allows the scene tell the story. Just without sort of imposing preconceived notions about how a four-year-old would feel. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. and I felt that strongly too. I want to talk a little bit about short story form. You're a short story writer um, Mm. as as well as a novelist, of course. Still getting used to that. It's still getting used to that word as well as a novelist. It's great. It's great. It's always nice to hear, isn't it? <laughs> um, but so, I mean, this story that you chose strikes me mm. as a formally very interesting story. Doing some really funny, unexpected things, for example, with the timeline of the story. Yeah. So we yeah. jump forward a little bit into yeah. his adulthood, but then, then we, we go back to I know. as a 16-year-old and that's where the story ends. Yeah. So there are little interesting things in its construction that for me didn't really come out until I'd read it a couple of times because yeah. I was caught up in the flow of the story. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. As a writer, do you find that you approach short stories with a kind of writer's eye? Like you're watching for the little techniques that other writers are using? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean... Well, I spend my whole time trying to learn things from other people. So I learned lots from this short story. Um, and, and I was taken with that as well, about how it jumped forward and then jumped back um, to that wonderful, wonderful scene, that final scene. Um, so, yeah, I am I am constantly looking at that. Um, and um, I think that's that's how we that's how we write. That's how we learn to write by reading other people. Um, and um I suppose what I love to do with short stories now and what I've learned to do with short stories now is to kind of, um, I, 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 I do stories like Oshin where I'd be thinking back over a period of years. I'm always really, really impressed with people who can write stories based on like a five minute moment or, you know, five minutes in a life or, or just a, uh, yeah, I love that. I, I love being lost in, in just a very, very short period of time. But I find myself constantly writing these stories that go over a, a, a long period of time. Um, and so what I like to do now is I like to mix up my story. I might write a story and obviously then in the re-edits, what I'm doing is I'm shifting times. I'm shifting. Oh, what if I put that up there? What? How does how does that read now? Um so I like doing that. It doesn't often work, but it just, I learn more about the story by doing, by shifting something out or shifting it around. And I know people would often go from, uh, you know, the first person to third. I like to just move my, move my paragraphs around. 
um, and to see, um, well, does that flow better in terms of the story? I'm... I'm, I suppose I try to keep to a timeline, but I love the fact that Oshin didn't keep to that linear time. I loved that. I loved that he jumped um, back and forth with it. And that's something that um, I'm trying to push myself to do a little bit more. And the sort of final thing that I want to ask about this story is about what seemed to me as a reader, the very deep ambition of what the story is actually saying. I think about the relationship with the mother, I think you mm. and I both felt that was a mm. very stable, grounding relationship yeah, yeah. and a very warm presence in the story. Yeah. But about the relationship between the narrator and the father, there's something <gasps> a lot more ambiguous going on Isn't there. there. And the ending of the story, for me, was like a, a question mark, a very yeah. interesting, a very productive yeah. question mark. But still, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I had the tools to make a conclusion about yes. what had happened in the story. <laughs> and I wonder about, is that is that part of... I guess that is certainly part of the appeal of the story. But yeah. I wonder how you felt about that sort of on finishing reading the story, maybe for the first time. Oh, I loved it. I loved it because Oshin said it from the beginning. I mean, he said, um, where is it? He said, um, uh, and though I do not think of this often, when I do, I become confused and hurt. He constantly talks about being confused about his father, being unsure of his ground with his father. And even that, that, that scene when um, the mo the more recent scene um, where he's talking about the grandfather dying and this odd conversation they have where you know they're saying you know have, well what's what's the plan and the other one's saying well what's your plan and it's like it's they never kind of meet they never manage to just fit together or be able to just understand each other. There is a constant, constant issue there with them. And I think if we'd had some kind of, well, not that we'd have had a resolution, but if we'd had some kind of moment of meeting for for just a split second, I don't know. Yeah, it, w it would have been powerful. But I think, I think Oshin stayed true to what his message was all along, was that this relationship with his father was just a frustrating, confusing one that really he had wanted to solve. He had wanted the father just to love him and to be with him and to be able to talk to him. But he just never got there. I feel that, um, as I think you were saying, there is a sort of sense that the narrator has been damaged by the, mm. by the deep ambiguity yeah. of this relationship. But at the same time, there's a lot of compassion in the story for the oh. father. There's that moment when we find out it's nearly his 30th birthday, yeah. which was for me was like a... <gasps> I know, they're so young. <laughs> they're so young. Oh my And goodness. there is a deep, I think, empathy yes. in that ambiguity, in yeah. that confusion, in that relationship. Yeah. It's not a condemnation of the father. Not at all. No, there's a lot of warmth. And, and you know, I think the the, narr the narrator has this understanding of his father from the mother, but also, um, you know, he he refers to, you know, when he met Ellen that she worked in a bar, which was rather strange given the father didn't drink, but probably because of his own father. So look at that depth that, you know, that narrator knew there was more to his father. There were issues with his father, and he was giving that empathy to his father. Um, he was giving love. He were, he loved that man. And like, like us all, we just want, wanted to, he just wanted to be loved back. He wanted to have that time. So again, that was another one of those wonderful Oshin Fagan moments where he just drops in. The father obviously had had a fairly difficult upbringing himself and wasn't really, wasn't really sure what it was to be a father, how to act as a father. 
and this this is this was the, the this was what was missing for this narrator his father's understanding of what it was to be able to be a father and thank you so much for joining us today. Anne's novel, When All Is Said, is available in all good bookshops. Um, thank you very much for Thanks, joining Mike. us. And thank you to our producer, Ian Malini.